as we continue our study in Isaiah 7, we'll be picking up at verse 10 and then reading to the end of the chapter. So I invite you to hear God's uh, inspired, infallible, and errant word. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But, a but Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall, be and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that's at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of the milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there. For all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. May God bless the reading and now the consideration of his word. A number of years ago, there was a debate on a college campus between two professors over the existence of God. Perhaps you've attended such debates in the past. They are quite common. One of the debaters was a Christian, the other was an atheist. In this particular argument, the most memorable part of the atheist professor's argument was that if Christianity is true and that everything rests on whether or not you believe in God, the uh, future of everlasting life and joy with him or a future of everlasting judgment apart from him, if the stakes are that high, then he would be, if he is as good as Christians say, morally obligated to do everything possible to make faith in him plausible. And uh, he, at the, uh, the climax of his argument was uh, that the people that were gathered there in that room, if it was so important for them to believe in God, then God ought to be willing to lift up the entire auditorium in which they were gathering, causing it to levitate in the air so that it would be obvious to those attending that God was real and that the, those listening should believe in him. Do you ever feel some sympathy with that pressure intellectually? Maybe you identify with the atheist and feel a bit of the weight of the argument. 
Now, it might not bother you personally, but maybe sometimes you do wish God would show up in a more obvious way for some of your friends or family or for neighbors or coworkers that uh, you uh, know and that you want to have believe in him. Maybe you wish uh, for something smaller stakes, but still significant in your own life, some difficulty that you face, something that's incredibly hard, and you just wish God would show up in a more obvious way in the middle of that personal crisis. What if the problem isn't with God, but the problem is with us? What if the spiritual dilemmas we face are not whether to believe, but who we are believing? Not if we have faith, but where we are placing our faith. This morning, we're going to focus on two, uh, two kind of topics uh, from this passage. The chi- sorry, the king and the child. It's the king and the child. Uh, first, the king. In our passage this morning, Isaiah has a second conversation with King Ahaz, who is in the middle of his own personal and national crisis. Just to review from last week, uh, Ahaz is the king of Judah, and Assyria is the rising, expanding, conquering, superpower empire of the time. In between Judah and Assyria are Syria and Israel, two smaller, closer neighbors of Judah. And those two neighbors have formed an alliance to resist Assyria. And they want Judah to join the alliance as well, even if it means that they have to invade Judah and depose Ahab, who is reluctant to join, which of course would mean uh, not just Ahaz retiring into quietness, but probably execution of Ahaz. So Ahaz faces a terrible dilemma. He can join the alliance and then risk risk destruction from the more powerful Assyrian empire, or he can join the empire and risk invasion from the closer alliance. So he doesn't have any good options. In Isaiah's first conversation with Ahaz, Isaiah introduces and urges a third option, uh, what we could call faithful neutrality. Don't join the alliance. Don't join the empire. Instead, do nothing. Trust God And don't look for salvation from the alliance or the empire, but look for salvation from God. Which, of course, is very similar to the instruction Moses gave when Egypt was bearing down on Israel at the Red Sea and they felt like their back was against the water. Do nothing and trust God for his salvation, which God answered and did for Israel at that time. Isaiah ends his challenge to Ahaz saying, if you aren't firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And here in the second conversation, Isaiah is following up that earlier conversation, and God, through Isaiah, makes an incredible offer. He invites Ahaz to ask for a sign that would confirm God's message through Isaiah. So that if Ahaz chooses faithful inaction, he might have a miraculous sign of his own choosing to rely upon as evidence and encouragement as he faces the fury of the alliance and the fury of the empire. 
God says, let it be as deep as Sheol, the grave, or as high as heaven. That's anything and everything, an earthquake or an eclipse. We see an incredible display of God's generosity here. The commission he gave Isaiah back in chapter 6 was a hard commission that Isaiah was going to preach and most of his fellow citizens would play the part of spiritual deaf mutes, being insensitive and insensible to God's overtures. But you have to put that hard word alongside God's actions. God knows what the outcome will be with Ahaz. Ahaz is basically exhibit number one of the Israelites or the Judahites who would listen to Isaiah and ignore his message. The first fulfillment of that hard commission. But God keeps pursuing Ahaz anyways. It's Ahaz that swats away God's invitation. His response is, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He declines the offer, and it seems like he gives a good reason for it. It's a biblical reason. He's uh, probably quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, where Moses commanded Israel, you shall not put the Lord to the test. Important reminder that when someone uses the Bible, they might just be using the Bible. Or if someone quotes the Bible, you have to make sure that they aren't misusing the Bible. Based on Isaiah's response, that's clearly the case here. In Deuteronomy, Moses was forbidding testing God because it was being used as a way to justify doubt. Through Isaiah, God is offering a sign to confirm faith. They're not parallel situations. It seems quite likely that Ahaz declines Isaiah's offer because he's already made up his mind what to do. Eventually, Ahaz throws in his lot with the empire, with Assyria. They're stronger. They're further away. They can take care of the alliance, and hopefully they'll leave him alone. So that puts Ahaz in an awkward position. If he asks for a sign, it might happen. Then he'd either have to openly reject God, who has just revealed himself through a sign, or he would have to change what he wants to do. Ahaz already has made a plan. Isaiah is risking messing up the plan. If God shows up, Ahaz might be blocked from doing something that he already wants to do. As we look at our own lives, there are plenty of times when we probably identify with Ahaz, or ought to. It's possible that we are skeptical about God. Maybe you're open with other people about skepticism, or you keep it to yourself, right? We, we do live in a pretty religious town. We have a Christian college here. Uh, uh, but I know that there are plenty of us who put on a show for our family and our friends. I know that while lots of people, lots of students choose to come to Grove City College because it's a Christian college, I know there's plenty of other students uh, who come to Grove City College because their parents choose Grove City College for them. And we might know the right words to say, but sometimes they can just be a shield. Is it possible, though, if we have uh, skeptical hearts, that there's some Ahaz in that skepticism? Do we keep God at arm's length? Because if he shows up, you might have to change. That's a question that believer and unbeliever faces. We already know what we want to do with our lives, 
but we realize that if God shows up inconveniently, he might make some claims on what we will do with our lives and our future. Realize that that's still faith, but it's Ahaz's faith. It's faith in yourself and your plans and your goals. You believe that you are able to make better plans for your life than the plans God would make for your life. In those moments, we are believing that we are wiser than God or that we, whoever or whatever we are trusting, is more reliable than him. So Ahaz has his problem. How can he deflect Isaiah's offer without alienating a sizable portion of his electorate who support Isaiah and want Ahaz to adopt Isaiah's policy of independent God-dependency? Isaiah makes Ahaz an extravagant offer, and Ahaz just sees a PR problem that he has to address. He probably thinks that his response is quite clever. He gives a very pious offer that will hopefully placate his pious subjects, but he also keeps all of his options open. There's no inconvenient miracles to force his hand. He's the consummate politician, which is, again, a reminder to us that just because someone's words sound good does not mean their heart is good. Ahaz's words sound great. He's quoting the Bible, but in his case, he's using God's word to avoid God and his claims. But Isaiah is not hoodwinked because God is not hoodwinked. Fake religiosity might fool us. Uh, it can fool any of us, but it does not fool God. So God responds, since you, Ahaz, won't choose a sign, I, God, will choose a sign for you. And we turn here from the king to the child. Verse 14 are some of Isaiah's best-known words and some of his most hotly debated words. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Many Bibles will include a footnote there that Emmanuel is the Hebrew name which is translated God with us. We'll come back to verse 14, but first we have to listen to the rest of the sign. That's just the introduction. As we read on, we see that originally the focus of the sign isn't in the first place on the mother or the mother's marital status or her sexual status or the means of the child's conception. The sign is about the child's age. It's about a time frame, a window in which God will bring these events to pass. Before Emmanuel can choose between good foods and bad foods, before he can choose between moral good and moral evil, the two nations of the alliance will be deserted. Whoever baby Emmanuel is, the timeline of history matches Isaiah's sign. Within two years, Assyria conquered Syria when a child would still be learning to eat solid foods and not other things that aren't food. Uh, and within 12 years, Assyria conquered Israel when a child would still be learning for themselves to be morally discerning between good and evil. But Judah uh, will also feel the pressure of the empire, since they, Ahaz is ch not choosing to trust in God. The child will eat curds and honey, not the cultivated produce of agricultural production, but wild and uncultivated foods. Because within that time, the Assyrian armies will so ravage and depopulate the region both Judah's enemies and Judah herself, that that will be the only food available. 
Isaiah unfolds that in more detail through verses 18 to 25. There's that ominous formula we've seen before, in that day. And in that day, the armies of Assyria and Egypt, the two rival superpowers at that time, will swarm through Judah like swarms of insects as those two empires clash on the territory of Judah, competing over Judah like two football teams compete over the ball. Ahaz pays Assyria to help him, but ultimately Assyria is going to be God's hired barber to shame Ahaz and Judah. Assyria will shave and humiliate Judah head to toe like the military would shave an involuntary draftee or prison wardens would uh, shave new prisoners. And then again, you see uh, at the end there the expansion of this destruction of commercial-scale agricultural businesses to be replaced by foraging uh, and hunting. Isaiah compares it in verse 17 to the previous low point of Israelite history, the permanent division of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms that are competing with one another in this passage. The irony is profound. God freely offers a sign to confirm Ahaz's faith in God's salvation and deliverance, but instead Ahaz chooses Assyria. He has to pay them to do what they want to do anyways, and now there's no buffer between uh, Judah and Assyria. In fact, we talked about the prophecy last time that within 65 years of these events, uh, the nation of um, uh, Ephraim, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, would be decimated. Uh, and one commentator uh, asked the question whether, uh, because uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, only lasts 12 years, which is a lot shorter than 65 years. One commentator asked the question, did the money that, that Ahaz paid Assyria facilitate Assyria destroying Israel faster so that then Israel, a buffer between Assyria and Judah, was gone and Ahaz felt the pressure that he may not have felt if he had trusted in God and not financed a, a conflict against his enemy. Because then what happens eventually is that Assyria then just goes on like the mob boss to continue demanding protection money, although they're not protecting uh, Ahaz from Syria and Israel anymore, they're protecting Ahaz from themselves. So, then coming back around to the child, who exactly is Emmanuel? Well, again, for the sign to work as originally described, it seems like Emmanuel must be a child conceived and born shortly after Isaiah's words. And there's been lots of guesses. Um, some have wondered if it was one of Isaiah's sons, uh, because Isaiah, we know, has two other sons, one we've already seen last week and one that we'll see shortly that he gives um, bulky, theologically bulky names to. Uh, and so perhaps this is the middle son, but uh, like if this is Isaiah's middle son, like many middle sons, he's uh, later overlooked. Uh, and so there's a few reasons why that might not be the case, uh, especially because uh, Isaiah already has a son, and if the situation described is uh, of a virgin conceiving, uh, the original um, word there in Hebrew is uh, adma. And it's actually a little bit more expansive, but also pretty specific in, in a couple different ways. It's, uh, adma is a young woman who is not yet married, but of marriageable age. 
And so in Hebrew society, it would be assumed that she would be a virgin um, because there's not um, the same cultural mores that we have today. Uh, but in that situation, as uh, Isaiah originally gives this word, it would be easy to assume that he's referring to an as yet unmarried woman who is then going to be married and then conceive and bear a child. The uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament then actually uses the more focused word of virgin, parthenos in Greek. Uh, it, but when we're reading the original story, it's not uh, obvious that it must be a miraculous virgin birth. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, so, as that applies to the Isaiah theory, that this, this is Isaiah's second son, then you start having to fill in gaps because uh, Isaiah already has a son who showed up in the last passage. So then you have to start adding details in, like perhaps this is a second marriage and that Isaiah is a widower. So he's referring to his upcoming uh, second marriage to a young, previously unmarried woman. Uh, the problem with uh, this theory, of course, is that you start having to jump through a lot of hoops to make it work. Some think that Emmanuel might be Hezekiah, and it's true that the book of Isaiah is arranged around a contrast between Ahaz, who's, faithful, uh, uh, who's unfaithful and unbelieving, and a contrast with Hezekiah, his son, the next king, who is faithful and believing. Uh, but again, the problem is that Hezekiah is probably already born at this point. So that comparison kind of falls apart, besides the fact that uh, in the book of Isaiah, while Hezekiah is better than Ahaz, Hezekiah himself is far from perfect, and I, Isaiah's vision increasingly focuses on someone to come after not only Ahaz, but also after Hezekiah, someone better than them both, someone who will really fulfill this Emmanuel promise and hope. When epidemiologists discuss outbreaks, uh, as um, we are probably reading a lot more about recently, not just if we're into disaster movies, uh, they will often start with patient zero. And we could say that as Isaiah's life and prophecy unfold, whoever Emmanuel zero was, Isaiah becomes vastly more interested in who Emmanuel Omega might be, the endpoint or final Emmanuel. As we read through scripture, you actually, you see this ongoing developing pattern through scripture of the hope that's vested in the child that comes. It starts all the way back with Adam and Eve after they wreck, uh, wreak havoc on themselves and all the human family descending from them. God promises that they will have a child, a descendant, who will overcome evil and restore the original good creation and relationship with God. Throughout biblical history, children are born in improbable situations, often to long infertile mothers, children like Isaac or the twins Esau and Jacob or Samuel. God made promises to Ahaz's own forefather, David, that a son of David would rule forever. Right? We have an echo of that in our own culture. Right? We, uh, as we get older, as adults become more jaded over the course of our lifetimes, or as we see that our impact on our uh, life and our world and generation are perhaps smaller than we had than we had hoped for when we were younger, uh, we begin to shift those hopes onto the next generation, our children or grandchildren or the generation to follow us. I think there might be a little, uh, uh, you know, uh, silly uh, piece of this when our hearts thrill at Baby Yoda. Maybe, maybe Baby Yoda 
the child of the Mandalorian can revive the faltering Star Wars universe because none of us understood what happened in episodes 7, 8, and 9, right? When we come to the Gospel of Matthew, though, we get Matthew looking back into Isaiah and we get him interacting with Isaiah to say, now we know Emmanuel Omega has come. When we hear the words that we heard earlier in our service, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And his adoptive father, Joseph, the son of David, is told, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All of this fulfilling what the Lord spoke, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. There are many, many biblical critics who look at what Matthew does with Isaiah passage, and they say, Matthew is being really sloppy with Isaiah. But what if instead, as I believe, Matthew is being sophisticated rather than sloppy? God's action in the life of Mary and the birth of Jesus is Emmanuel Omega, the final dramatic fulfillment of a long-building anticipation of the hope of God with us. And then it's only when Matthew's looking back on the life of Jesus that he can look back into the uh, book of Isaiah. And like, uh, um, like every gifted author, uh, if you have your favorite authors and you read their books, and then after you read them, you want to reread them, because at, when you finish the book, you realize, I now know what they were doing. So you want to go back in to read the book and catch all the crumbs and the hints and all the things that are woven together for that beautiful final cl climax to the novel. Well, here we just see God as the incredible author who is leaving the breadcrumbs through the scriptures. So that then we say, oh, yes, this might be about what's going on in Ahaz's day, but this is about something so much bigger. The child is the sign. And for us, the child, Jesus, is the sign. We crave signs of God's presence. We crave signs of God's care. It's not just atheist professors. I knew a college student uh, years ago who was wrestling with their own faith, and they were juggling between faith and doubt in God. They did not come from a religious background, but uh, they were begun, beginning to consider who God might be. And they were, an in, they were uh, on an internship in a very large American city, and so she was walking on her way to work, and as she's walking, she is praying that if you're there, God, reveal yourself to me, help me believe, show me that you're really there, and she was so wrapped up in this conversation with the God that she wasn't sure was there that she starts going across a crosswalk without the sign on. And so traffic comes zooming through the intersection and she jumps back from the large truck which has on its side G-O-D, guaranteed on time delivery. And that wasn't the only thing that God used in her life, but it was one piece of the puzzle that God used to confirm to her the reality of his presence. And she was also glad the truck didn't actually hit her. Uh, but God's given us all far better signs than levitating auditoriums or uh, dangerous delivery trucks. The child 
is the sign. Uh, the Christian professor in that debate circled around and basically their main <laughs> argument was that if you are already settled in your convictions, it doesn't matter what signs and evidence God gives you. Uh, if God were constantly levitating buildings and doing other parlor tricks, then uh, we would struggle to do basic uh, science. Uh, and we'd also just acclimate to a world of randomly floating devices. And we would say, God, if you were really there, would you just show yourself to me by making something stay put? As I say that, it makes me think like the prayer of a parent, right? <laughs> Uh, but in this, uh, you know, coming back to the child, uh, we have the fulfillment of this sign in Christ. We have a child who comes and who is God with us, God so much with us that he eats curds and honey. He eats our everyday food. Jesus, uh, Jesus says in one parable, speaking of signs, he imagines a, a scenario in the afterlife, and he has uh, three characters in the parable. He has a Father Abraham, who's kind of the voice of God in the parable, and then he has Lazarus, Lazarus, who was a poor man, and he has Lazarus' master. And Lazarus, the poor man, is with Abraham in the good place, and uh, the master's in the bad place. And at the end of the conversation, the master appeals to Abraham and says, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let him hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Isaiah said, ask a sign of the Lord. Let it be as deep as the grave or as high as the heavens. What bigger sign do we need than the resurrection of a human being from the grave as God raised Jesus from the grave for us? Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us, God with us in life, God with us in suffering, God with us in sorrow and in misery. Ahaz's people bore an incredible cost for his faith in himself. It impacted not just himself, but his whole nation. He was the son of David, the king, so his decisions reverberated through the lives and the deaths of all of his people. Generations lived in poverty, and were ruled by a succession of foreign empires because of Ahaz and his lack of faith in God. But Jesus is the son of David who comes to live in that poverty and under those empires to be the king who bears the incredible cost of our misplaced faith. God with us in our judgment. God with us in our death so that he might be God with us in resurrection, in hope, and in everlasting life. When we doubt, when we despair, we have been given the sign of Emmanuel, God with us, the child Jesus given to us so that we might be God's children through him. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we thank and praise you for this word. 
And we thank and praise you that the reality of the incarnation of Christ, the divine Son of God become a human being, is a reality that shapes not just a holiday season on our calendar, but transforms everything about our lives now and in the future. We pray, Father, that you would help us. We are Ahabs. If you do not give us eyes to see, we will not believe. We will not trust. We will not rest in you. We pray that you'd use your word and you'd send your spirit so that we might see what you have done and find our hope there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.